Okay, let's take our Bibles out. We're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as we continue to work our way through there. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse 8. It says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as, last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist of talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in a spirit of gentleness? It's been, I think, coming up on a year that I joined the fire department. One of the things that I've noticed is I don't think I go to anything, any training or any fire or accident where I don't learn something. It surprised me actually how much I've learned in the last year. Even something as simple as spraying water on something seemingly, there are different ways to do it that make sure you get it where you need it. And so I've learned a lot. Some of it has come through the training officer and the training sessions and and stuff, of course. But a lot of it has come through just uh, somebody stepping up while maybe I'm at the end of a hose spraying water on something and they come up and they say, hey, why don't you do it this way or why don't you do it from this angle or, or just uh, stepping up and being able to ask somebody a question. Well, what about this or why are we doing that instead of this? Or A lot of it has just been from these people that are there that have been doing it a, a lot longer than I have. They just step up and, and offer you a little bit of advice or direction or help. That has been so beneficial. And it's all come through just other people just kind of stepping up and helping. You know, that's kind of the way it is in our walk with Christ as well. God puts different people in our lives that have been maybe walking with Him longer or walking with Him through some similar circumstances than what we're embarking on now. Or, you know what we call them? Mentor. But uh, that's, that's what we're looking at is this idea of being mentored or mentoring. The mentors that I have at the fire department have been very valuable to me as I'm learning what I need to do there. The mentors that I've had in my walk with Christ have been very helpful in my life as I've grown in my relationship with Him up through this day. There's friends, there's people that I get around that when I, when I leave from being around them, I feel challenged to do better. I feel strengthened, encouraged, and we need that. Well, the reason I bring that up right now is because that's what the Apostle Paul is doing with these Corinthians. And he's trying to get them to accept his leadership, basically, as a mentor. He had a, a history with these people. He led them to Christ. He taught them in Christ. But they're kind of getting distracted and they're wandering off the path and doing their own thing. And he's just presenting himself kind of back to them saying, well, you're going the wrong way. Just step back and follow. Follow my lead. 
The Bible makes it very clear that we need mentors in our lives for these kinds of things. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, he tells Timothy, "...and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also." So the Apostle Paul, who led Timothy to Christ and, and mentored Timothy, he then tells Timothy, now you find men that you can pass on what I taught you so that they can pass it on to others. And that's how Christianity spreads and that's how it grows. But he does the same thing with the women in the letter to Titus. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Notice where the foundation is, and this is regardless of whether men or women. The foundation is your character, right? In order to be a mentor, that's where it's really got to start, is, is your character, because you don't really want people following you if you don't have good character, because then they're just making the same mistakes you are. And so he starts with them in dealing with character. Likewise, they're to be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not slaves to much mind. So he lists these character traits. He says, so then your older women of solid character, they need to train the younger women. It's that idea of mentoring. People that have grown in their faith then need to look for people coming behind them that are walking the same path, that are growing in their relationship with Christ, to be an encouragement to those people, to help them to learn some of the lessons that you learned and maybe not learn them the hard way. Learn them in a way that is much easier. Well, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's having a little bit of a tough time of it because the Corinthian people, they're having a real trouble with arrogance. Remember, we focused on that last week. We looked last week at the antidote to arrogance because there was a lot of arrogance that they were struggling in within the Christian church that was causing these divisions and things. He states it plainly. If we look back at verses 6 and 7, it says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, for who sees anything different in you? In verses 6 and 7, he recognizes there's a danger of them becoming puffed up and going beyond what is written and elevating people beyond the level that you should be elevating them. Then in the passage that we began to read in verse 8, he starts out with a little bit of sarcasm. He says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And so he's just kind of sarcastically saying, I know that you've arrived. I know that you've achieved. You're there. You're the king. You're, you have all you need. You don't need anything. So he employs a little bit of sarcasm. And then at the end of the passage that we read, he just states it bluntly. He says in verse 18, Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The Apostle Paul is trying to mentor people that are stuck in their arrogance. And that's what we see in between the, the beginning and the end of that passage. What we find is a mentor. We find somebody that is grown in his faith and has good understanding, trying to pass that on to people that are struggling. And their specific struggle was arrogance at that moment. In looking at the, the process that he leads him through, we learn some things about mentor. What makes a good mentor? And that's what we're going to look at here this morning is the marks of a mentor. We're going to look at four different marks of what makes up a good mentor. The first one that we find is that they are others-oriented. For self-oriented, well, then that's the arrogance that he's trying to quell there. In order to be a mentor, you have to be others-oriented. You have to be thinking about other people. You have to be thinking about what builds them up, what grows them. 
And you've got to be willing to make sacrifices. In fact, for a long time, I had on there self-sacrificing instead of others-oriented just because of the, 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 the two are so closely related. But that's what you've got to be. You've got to be others-oriented. You've got to be thinking about other people. And you've got to be making uh, choices that what things are better for them, not necessarily just better for you. Even recently, I've thought about it a little bit in the construction part of the things that I do. Because uh, one of the things that I've uh, done in the construction stuff is I've purposely tried to keep it small. Because my main focus is the church and the ministry here. And that's the way I want it to stay. And I don't want my mind to go in a lot of different directions. I like to stay focused. But I thought something else. What are or responsibilities within the community. Maybe it falls down to part of my responsibility to take young men from the community and teach them my trade. Well, I already am, but but it's uh, mostly my family with Tim, just like Fig's doing with Johnny and training the next generation. I'm looking forward to um, watching my grandkids come up and I want to teach them the ones that are interested in it at least teach them the trade and hand it off to them. But you know what? That's the thing. When you're in a part of a community, you got to think about, well, what's better for the community and with the older Men and older women within the community, what responsibility do we have to the younger men and younger women of our community to pass on the things that we've learned down through the years? It's along these lines that we need to be thinking. What does it take to be a mentor? We've got to not just think about our own. We've got to think about others. What's good for somebody else? What can I do for somebody else? How can I help the people that are around me, my community, my church family, my family? Probably should have started in the other order because you start closest to you and work out. But we have responsibilities in those areas to be mentors. In all of our lives, we should be both of them. We all should have people that we look up to, that we draw strength from, that we draw lessons from, encouragement from. I don't mean that it has to be a formal relationship where you go up and say, you know what, I'm choosing you as my mentor, I'm going to follow you. But just people in your life that you can learn from, that you can get advice from, that you find helpful. We all need mentors in our life. But you know what? We'd be completely self-absorbed if we only saw that side of the equation. We also need to be mentors for whoever's coming behind us. It's just part of being part of a community. It's part of being part of the church. It's part of being part of the family. We learn from our parents and our grandparents, and we then teach our children and our grandchildren. And it's the same way within the family of God. I started out in the family of God as a young man, absorbing a lot from a lot of great people. And there has to be a transition time where I become that for somebody else as well. And that's the process of growth. Well, what makes this the mark of a good mentor is being others oriented. Notice with the Apostle Paul how he starts out. He says after the kind of got the sarcasm out of the way there a little bit. He says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor. We in disrepute. So notice what he's saying. He's saying, look, I'm willing to be a fool if he'll make you wise. I'm willing to be weak if it'll make you strong. I'm willing to be dishonored if it'll make you honored. You see, he's willing to put the good of the Corinthian people ahead of his own good. In fact, it's to an extreme level because he starts off, he says, I think that God God has put us apostles at the end of the procession here, at the end of what it's referring to is a celebration back in Rome. If a Roman general went out and won a decisive battle, When he came back to Rome, it would be celebrated. 
And what would happen is, this general would become part of this parade as they marched to the Colosseum. They headed into the arena. And then his officers and his troops would march in with him. And they'd be celebrated as he came to the Colosseum. And then behind him, his officers and his troop would be his prisoners. Especially the leadership that they captured of the opposing army. And the king, if he was still alive, they would be at the end of the parade. They would march those people into the Colosseum, down into the arena, and then they would be the sport for the day. And they would let loose the wild beasts, the wild animals. They would basically be a gladiator that was sentenced to death. And so that was the entertainment. Was now, now we'll watch all of these captive prisoners from this great defeat. We'll watch them all be destroyed by the wild beasts and stuff in the, in the arena. And the Apostle Paul says, you know what? I think that's where God put us. He said, they put us at the end of of the procession. We're doomed to die. And all the apostles did die very cruel deaths, except for John. And even he was tortured, just didn't die at that point. But he says, you know what? That's our place. We're at the end of the procession being brought in as a spectacle in this triumph, which is what they called it, and that celebration. And the apostle Paul is saying, but you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that if it benefits you. You see that he's putting other people before himself. He's more concerned about the good of the Corinthian church than he is of himself. We find that in other places in his writing. I think of Philippians. Philippians, the Apostle Paul is sitting in prison, languishing in prison, doesn't know if he's going to get let out or get put to death. And he says, I'm not sure which is going to happen. He says, now, if I had my pick, which would I choose? He said, you know what? I'd rather get put to death. For me to depart and to be with Christ, he says, that's better by far. But as he continues to think about it and talk about it, he says, I also know that if I got let out, I would be useful to you. And so I got this idea. I'm thinking that God's probably going to do that. And he says, you know what? I'm good with that too. And so he says, I have my pick. I would rather this. But if it's more needful for you for me to stick around, then I'm glad to stick around. Well, that was always his attitude in working with other people. That's why I made, he made a good apostle. He was a good mentor because he would put the needs of the people that he was ministering to above his own desires and above his own needs. You can't be an effective minister or mentor to other people unless you're willing to give up a little bit for them. Unless you're going to sacrifice a little bit of your time or your talents or, or even your treasure to be an impact in the lives of other people. You have to be others-oriented. But not only do we see that that is a good mark of a mentor, but we also see that he's patient. A good mentor is patient. It takes time with the people that we're training and everything. We have to be patient for them to catch on to these lessons. The Apostle Paul is uh, experiencing that, and I would say even probably learning that some more as he deals with these feisty Corinthians for sure. But as we look in verses 12 and 13, Notice that it changes a little bit. He's just been talking about the things that he's willing to go through for them. He says, And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So he says in all these things, he takes a negative first and then a positive second. The negative is always how they're treated and the positive is how they respond. He said, when these things happen to us, when people attack us, when they slander us, when, when they revile us, we respond in a positive way. You know what I've noticed is that sometimes when we run into that kind of treatment, when somebody slanders us, a lot of times we react and we, and we come firing right back against them. 
And, and what the Apostle Paul is saying here is he says, you know, we don't do that. In fact, a distinction that I thought of, and, and it might just be a semantics thing a little bit, but a distinction that I thought of is I need to be in the habit of when somebody does something against me, I need to respond rather than react. Do you sense the difference there? I know they can both be used the same also. But a response is something that is thought through, thought out, calculated, right? A reaction is something that flares up, that's quick. And a lot of times our natural is just to react. And we lash back, and that's usually when we do things that we regret later. What we need to do is we need to respond. What's the difference between reacting and response? You know, you know what it is? It's patience. That's the difference. Being patient. Now, patience is a virtue. Unfortunately, it's a virtue that people are often proud to not have. I don't know how many people I've heard say it and even done it myself before, say, well, I'm not a very patient person. And they're not really apologizing for it. They're actually kind of glorying in it. But it's not to be gloried in. It's not a quality to be impatient. It's a quality to be patient. I remember one time I was on a, a job working on a building and we were going to be setting some trusses and we were deciding who's going to be running the machine that lifts the trusses up to us. And the guy that I was talking to that was the customer, he had a lot of equipment and he says, well, I got this one guy that works for me. I'll, I'll put him on it. And he described him in a way that surprised me. He says, he's a good guy. He's patient. You know, in the field of construction, I haven't often heard as a positive thing somebody being pointed out as being patient. And often even from customers, they're not necessarily looking for patience. They're looking for you to get their job done. But he described him as a major character quality trait in that guy's eyes as somebody that was patient. And I thought, you know what? That's smart. I'm the one hanging on the side of a post while he's swinging the truss over there. I want him to be patient. I want that thing to go right where it needs to go and not pushing me backwards or anything like that. I want that guy to be patient. I said, patience is good. I like patience. But you notice it's the same thing. Sometimes at work, I'll get impatient with a tool that's not working the way that it should be or get impatient with a process that's not going right. I find that if I react suddenly to those things, it usually makes it worse. That tool doesn't get fixed because of my impatience. It might get broke because of it, but it's not getting fixed because of it. And that's a bad thing. But if I stop and take the time to see what's the matter with it, to make the best decision, if I respond in the right way with a little bit of patience, then things get a lot better. Well, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's saying, look, people, they revile us. We respond back positively. They slander us. We respond back positively. We're not just going to react to the heat of the moment. We're going to think things through and we're responding in a way that we should be. Well, the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Notice that right in the middle of it. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You know, if you think about it that way, it might help us. Next time we're tempted to brag about, well, I'm not a very patient person, might as well just say, you know, I'm not very Spirit-led. I don't, I don't really yield to the Spirit in my life very much. Because we're really saying the same thing if you think about it. Because if the fruit that the Spirit produces in our life is patience, then we're really foolish to be our, uh, glad that we're not a very patient person. In Romans chapter 2, he describes people that are saved as patient people. He says, He will render to each one according to his works. He's talking about when we all stand before judgment. He says, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Notice who gets eternal life in the end. Those who by patience seek for glory, honor, and immortality. 
Now, I know some might ask the question, He will render to each according to His works. Wait a minute, I thought we weren't saved by our works. We're saved by our faith. That's absolutely true. But you know what faith does in your life? It works. It changes you. It changes your life. In the end, who's standing there saved? People who through patience, because faith is patient, endured, and sought for the right things. Well, as we look at the marks of a good mentor, we need to be others-oriented. We need to be patient. But then also we need to be productive. We need to be productive. Now what I mean by this is the goal in our interactions with people needs to always be to build. Always be building them. Not, we're not trying to tear them down. We're trying to build them up. That's what we're trying to accomplish. In verses 14 and 15, it says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And then he goes on into his being a mentor to them. He compares them not just to a guide, but even to a father, as a father does to the children. And I think that's a great that he did that right at that moment. Because when you think about parenting, are you treating your children because it's just fun to humiliate them? No. With parenting, you always got their best in mind. You always got their, the thing that you want for them, what you, what you want for them. And that's the whole point is we need to be building people up. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, I'm not, I'm not doing this to tear you down. I'm, I'm not pointing these things out to shame you. I'm not trying to shame you. What I want to see is changes in your life for the better. What I want to do is build you up. I have to point out these things that might make you feel like I'm tearing you down, but I, that's not really what I want. I, I have no delight in your feeling of shame. I have no delight in your feeling of humiliated. I want you strengthened. I want you built into something that you should be. I want to be a productive part of your life. You know, I like watching that in my kids as I watch them with their kids. And there's, I remember one time not too long ago, one of Leah's kids did something and I, I didn't understand. I was like, what are, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> she came in and she's like, well, what's going on? I said, oh, well, he did this. I'm not sure why or whatever. And, but she, of course, studies her kids and she had a bigger context that went with it. And so... I just kind of stepped back and watched her deal with them and with the understanding and patience and direction. And I thought, wow, that was really cool. I'm glad I was there to see it. She just dealt with it from a perspective of wanting to show him the correct way, steer him down the right path. And man, it was sweet. It was just really neat to watch. I love that when you get to being grandparents, you don't have to do that stuff. You can watch somebody else do it. But it's very rewarding. That's what we see within the Apostle Paul here. Even though these people are doing some stuff that's obviously frustrating him. Is it part of that frustration, the reason that he starts out with sarcasm? I think maybe. So he's been a little bit sarcastic. Oh yeah, you guys are kings. You don't need nothing. I know you have everything you need. I know. But you know what? He's going to say, look, I, I'm not trying to humiliate you. I'm not trying to drag you through the mud, make you feel shame. I just want to build you up. I just want to strengthen you in your, in your walk, in your, in your life there. But then lastly... Lastly, he gives us this example. Because he says in verses 16 and 17, he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child, and the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. He says, imitate me. You know, if you want to be a mentor, you've got to be somebody that's worth following. 
got to be cultivating within your life this growth for Christ, this faith in Christ, this compassion toward other people. We need to be somebody worth following. That's what the Apostle Paul is recognizing that God has led in his life that he has overcome some things that can help other people overcome some things and they can follow him in doing that. And then that's why he also points to Timothy. He says, Timothy, he's a good helper too. He can help in that as well. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 19 and 20, The Apostle Paul says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your own welfare. For they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in this gospel. And so he talks about Timothy being a great example of the Apostle Paul's example as well. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10, he writes to Timothy and says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. You know, Peter would write about the same thing, and he would talk about how the pastors and the elders, which that's the same thing, He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so example is a big part of how we learn and and how we grow. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 11 and 12, he just got done correcting them because they weren't, hadn't really grown like they should. And then he says, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says, Look, I want you to be imitators of those who've gone before you. When he gets to chapter 11, he's going to give them, we call it the hall of faith. All these positive examples from the Old Testament, people that live by faith, and he's saying, look, now it's your turn to run their race. Follow their example. Imitate them. And that's really what mentoring is all about. It's about following the examples of the people that we can learn from and being the example for the people that can learn from us. You know, I remember one time I was working in a nursing home well, I wasn't working there. I was doing Sunday services there every week back in Owatonna. And uh, <clears throat> there was an old guy in there that actually put, professed faith in Christ when we first went in there. He, one of the first weeks that we were there, a friend of mine, John Shea, that went with me every week, also uh, had a chance to lead that guy to the Lord. And we used to love visiting with that guy after, after the services. His name was Mr. Wondra, Frank Wondra. And it was kind of interesting because we also had this, uh, we had this other lady that was always there, and her name was Viv, uh, Vivian. In fact, it was uh, Vivian Genevieve Larson from Wasika. That's how she, every week she introduced herself to you that way. Hi, I'm Vivian Genevieve Larson from Wasika. You know, sometimes I'd walk in and say, hey, Vivian Genevieve Larson from Wasika. And she'd get a big smile on her face. And, and uh, anyway, uh, Vivian would have little fits a little bit from time to time. And, I remember one time trying to trying to help her calm down when she was having a struggle, and and she hit me, and so I called for the nurse, and the nurse came over and got her and wheeled her off to her room to help get her settled down and stuff, and because uh, somebody that was sitting next to her had kind of got her said something that she didn't like and got her riled up, and and uh, so then I thought, well, that's over. I stepped back to talk to Mr. Wondra. I said, hey, Mr. Wondra, how are you doing? And he's looking at me real serious, and he says, wow. 
she hit you. I said, yeah, she did. And you, you didn't hit her back. <laughs> and I, just, I couldn't help but laugh. I said, no. I said, no, I didn't hit her back. And he's like, that was pretty good. <laughs> you know? And I thought, well, if that's the best I can do is to be patient with a, with a lady in a wheelchair by not hitting her back, I think I can set my sights a little higher than that. But, but it was interesting, though. Here I found Mr. Wonder, the guy in his upper 80s, and, uh, but still looking to me, actually, as a mentor at that moment, and learning, looking ahead and learning. You know what? The fact of the matter is, in our entire life down here, we never get to the point where we don't need a mentor. And we need to continue. We need to also work to be mentors for another, one another as well. In order to do that successfully, we need to be others-oriented. We need to be patient. We need to be productive, always trying to build into their lives, build up their lives, not just look for, not shaming them in the things that they're, that they're blowing it in, but trying to strengthen them to come out of that. And we do that largely by being an example.